Patrick Gall, in my eyes, is an unsung Liverpool and legal legend. We met 26 years ago on my first nerve-wracking day as a trainee solicitor with leading Liverpool law firm Waitmans. Paddy, as he's known to many, was my first boss. And instead of the anticipated query about my legal knowledge, he immediately asked me if I was a red or a blue. As a raving Liverpool fan meeting an Evertonian, it was a test I immediately failed, but one that began our bond and cemented our love of chat and banter for years to come. Patrick was not only a great lawyer, but as its managing partner from 2003 to 2013, he led Waitmans to become a leading national law firm, securing its future and legacy for years to come. Now retired from the legal world, we will not only chat about his conversations and the power of words and how they've impacted his life and career, but his passion for all things Ireland, including his 20-year mission to help secure the future of Liverpool's Irish Centre for current and future generations. Let's talk on to walk on with Patrick Gall and let's see where it leads. Patrick Gall, I can't believe I've got you on my podcast. <laughs> I can't believe so, it either, really. And, uh, well, thank you for indulging me. And I think I, I completely played on the fact that I know that you struggle to say no. And secondly, and more importantly, I know you've got a really big desire to promote the Liverpool Irish Centre, which we will come on to. But mm-hmm. obviously, I wanted to get you on the podcast because I think you're brilliant and I think you've got an amazing story. And I love your way with words. So I'm going to start by asking you to just set the scene because you have zero presence on social media, which is another reason I love you. But you just need to. <laughs> To let people know who is Patrick Gall and tell us about growing up in Liverpool and in the, the Gall family. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I don't do social media. No. I don't know how people have the time to do it. So <laughs> growing up, we were born in St. Matthew's Parish on um, Queen's Drive, Club Moor. After a few years, we moved to St. Paul's in West Derby. And uh, that's where I went to school, where I served on the altar. And then age 11, I went to St. Eddie's and got taught by the Christian Brothers. Parishes were very important. Every My mum always talked about parishes. She never talked about postcodes. It was always parishes. And she knew every parish in Liverpool. And she had what was called the Quarantory Guide so that she could find Mass at any time of the day. So that was a big feature <laughs> of our childhood. So I was a church aged about seven. And my mum said there's a meeting for new altar boys and uh, you're going and I said oh, I don't want to I'd rather play football and she said you're going and uh, <laughs> I was an altar boy till I got out of being an altar boy aged 18 when I went to university. Childhood was things like getting up for seven o'clock mass in the morning and running to mass on my own from the age of about eight and running back and then having me breakfast then running back to school that was quite a long way it was about a mile sometimes serving mass at lunchtime very often serving Mass in the evening. So it was a big load of church going on, and I could easily have been a priest. Age about 14, uh, I remember the parish priest said to me, uh, are you thinking about becoming a priest? And of course I wasn't, but it was a close front thing, I think. And then um, I got sort of interested in law because of my dad. My dad was a legal executive. His career was very interesting. He joined a law firm, which eventually became Rutherford's, which eventually became Waitman Rutherford's. He joined that firm in 1935. He was age 14 when he left school. And he, he could have gone to two firms. And I remember his tale was uh, he went for a job interview in one firm and then another firm offered him more money, uh, which was 10 shillings a week. And he joined a firm, I think it might have been called Edwin Berry or Herbert Green or something like that. Uh, and then that became John F. Cowper after the war. So my, my, dad, my dad's legal career 
was a bit interrupted. But he did actually get offered articles in about 1961. But unfortunately, by then, he it was already on his way to having lots of kids that he just couldn't afford it. So he remained a legal executive until the age of 70 when he retired in 1990. And I had about a year working in Rutherford's with my dad. But he, he worked till he was 70. And I was lucky enough to start work when I was 56, about three years ago. When I, when I qualified in 1980, rubbish on dates, mid-80s, he wrote me a letter, which I wish I'd kept, but it actually decomposed. I did keep it, but it decomposed. Oh. And he wrote, he wrote a letter to me saying, I'm so glad that you've qualified. And it meant nothing to me at the time. It was just like, you know, part of the job. But I qualified rather luckily after doing no work in the, in the Law Society finals. And uh, he wrote to me saying, you've now got the chance to do all the things I wish I could have done. Uh, and as I say, it didn't really mean much at the time. But looking back, he must have had a sort of mixture of a little bit, a very small bit of envy because he was a very contented man. He wasn't envious. But also he probably thought, well, if I'd have qualified, I'd have been able to do so much more. And he was a, he was a good practitioner, my dad. He did probate and conveyancing. And his big forte was licensing. He was a, quite a renowned licensing lawyer. And he acted for all the big breweries through this fellow called John F. Cowper, who died in 1967. Anyway, when John F. Cowper died, a fellow came along to buy the practice called Tony Enzer. My dad's connection was with the breweries, in particular John Smith, who was at uh, Tetley's somewhere, uh, led to Rutherford's acting for Liverpool Football Club, which you've already mentioned, and let's hope we don't mention it again. But uh, <laughs> my, my, my dad ended up uh, introducing Liverpool Football Club to the practice. One of his stories was he was, uh, just before he got called up, he was uh, working in, I think it was Dale Street. A bomb came down and blew the practice up. They couldn't uh, obviously practice because the, the place was in, in ruins, it was, it was in rubble. And I said, well, what did you do and how long did it take you to get the practice started up again, thinking it would be a matter of weeks or months. So he said, oh, he said, I went down to the local barbers and they had a room at the back. And the practice started up that afternoon from the back of a barbershop. <laughs> so a brilliant story. He had lots of tales to tell, and his his job consisted of typing. He could do shorthand. He he could do everything. My dad. Uh, he lit he, he lit the fires. That was one of his jobs when he started. But he was he was a great inspiration, and and he started talking to me about law, and I sort of got interested in it. And you know, he got interested in sort of you know Rumpole of the Bailey type stuff, you know, and and got interested in the romance of it. So when I realised I wasn't going to be a footballer or a singer or a priest, um, <laughs> I uh, I decided to become a lawyer. It really came from my dad and hit me dad just talking about the law and he had a great respect for it and a great fondness for it and he sort of passed that on, you know. So you had the discipline of getting up early and being self-responsible yeah. from your mum and then the inspiration from your dad. Yeah. I mean, that's an absolutely gorgeous story, that, Patrick. I remember going to, you had the privilege and honour of going to your dad's funeral and it was absolutely mm. jam-packed. Yeah. And he was obviously so highly regarded, like mm. yourself. And to me, listening to that just makes it sound like it's definitely definitely passed down from father to son without a doubt family has been your absolute backbone and as what as i think has kept your feet firmly planted on the ground throughout your yeah. prestigious career which we will come on to well we are close i mean i don't know whether we're well, it's, it's a difficult thing we're in a close family isn't it because you can get too mm. close three of us left three of us stayed in liverpool uh, and i suppose in a sense that's sort of had the other three coming back and and we've we've stayed here. I mean, obviously, my mum lived till she was in her nineties, and so people kept coming back. And I left age eighteen. I went to university. I was away for ten years. And one of the big things is the draw of Liverpool. You know, I was going to ask you about that because you, you went to London, and that must have been a, an eye opener in itself. But then you came back. So we'll come mm -hmm. back to London in a second. But is that the reason you came back? Was your love of the city and a faff of family? Yeah, I think so. I think that. I mean, I was away. For, I was at university and law college in London. 
was the best part of 10 years. But I, I never felt like I left and I kept coming back a lot. But I think all of us, I mean, my mum always used to say, I mean, mum was sort of a great sort of Irish patriot, but she always said, unlike a lot of Irish people, she, she said, this country and this city has done very good things for us. And she was always very keen to convey that to us. So I think that we had that sense that Liverpool was a great place. And it wasn't, you know, growing up. Liverpool wasn't easy uh, in many ways in the in the 1970s. You know, it, it was in decline in many ways, uh, right through into the 80s as well. But I think that there was a, a sense, without being sort of militant and, you know, banging on about the Socialist Republic of Liverpool, she she sort of conveyed this, and my dad as well, this, this sense that this was a good place and it had looked after us because my man's family probably arrived with little and uh, I know my dad's family arrived with nothing and uh, within two or three generations we were we were doing well and we were in good schools and the education thing was a huge thing my mum used to keep she kept everything she 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 kept things like little snippets from the papers about the importance of education and so talking about discipline you know we we had to work hard from the day we went to school because you know my mum ruled with a mixture of sort of love and it's a bit like god you know that the love of god god is close to the fear of god and you've got to fear the lord and all that sort of stuff we, we really there was a part of us that feared me ma'am and she <laughs> she even though she was really poorly educated in many ways she she left school like my dad aged you know 15 or something she she thought it was really important that we were well educated and so she was always banging on about you know have you done your homework and have you done your reading and all that sort of thing and so yeah, i think that's uh, very very similar yeah. And they sound very similar, Patrick. Yeah, yeah. interesting. But I think the uh, the um, thing about closeness, I, I think we were lucky, really, because we weren't too close, because all of us at some stage left, apart from one sister, she she stayed. And I think sometimes to, to remain close, you have to leave. Big truth in that. I, I mean, I, I've always loved Liverpool, and my kids love Liverpool, but I think part of my love for Liverpool is having been in other cities. So you were in L- London during the 80s. What was that like? Because I know that was when you started your legal career. You, did you go straight from Oxford to London? No, I went to Law College in Manchester. Uh, so I, just very briefly on that, I did have the best time of my shooting days in Manchester. And uh, Manchester, I, I saw the Smiths before they were the Smiths, you know, and I saw all sorts of great bands at the Hacienda. And, and, and I had a great time in Manchester. I'm very fond of Manchester. I do think this Liverpool-Manchester ride rivalry is the most ridiculous thing because it's the northwest is such a great place and there's so much in common anyway in 84 yeah 84 i went down to london and did my articles in the city for two years and then i and joined a firm called the brasses i started at waitman's or waitman rutherford's 1989 and I was there till the 1st of June, nine, uh, 2018. Yeah, a long 2000. time. Yeah, long 30, time. 30, I think it was 34 years, something like that. Yeah, and with you on the on the Manchester-Liverpool thing, but again, as with always with our conversations, we can digress into so many different directions. But I think it, I'd like mm-hmm. to think it is just more banter, and there's definitely movements in terms of us collaborating and coming together more to, to like you say, celebrate and promote ourselves mm-hmm. as the Northwest with unique offer from each city. In terms of London, though, what was it like being a, a scouser in London for 10 years, ten years during the 80s? I got off the bus slowly uh, for two years because I, I, I was a bit bored. But my life in London was great. I, I was a bit skint, obviously, during articles, as everyone is. London is it's, it's cosmopolitan, isn't it? So I certainly didn't become 
Cockney or Southern, but I, I became cosmopolitan. So London, my first two years I worked in the city, I learned about rich people. I started to understand how the system worked. You know, I, my first office was on Bishopsgate, just, just by, you know, the financial centre, just by all the banks. And I started to appreciate how powerful London was and how big capitalism was. And then uh, when I qualified, I had a, a brilliant job at a firm called the Brasses and I was doing what we call then medical negligence. But it wasn't just that. Really, anything doctors and dentists did we did so I did you know I did defamation I did crime I did judicial review I did inquiries I did employment work I had the most brilliant time for three years went all over the country you know followed the high court round it was, it was just a brilliant time I, I learned so quickly because I was busy from day one my learning curve just rocketed from the day I joined Labrassas and I had the greatest time there and I met lovely people there I'm still in touch with a brilliant education for me and London is whether we like it or not the capital of the law it's the capital of all sorts of things. But if you walk around the high course and you walk down Chancery Lane, you go into the, the temple, you know, you see how powerful the law is. It was a bit like seeing the, the financial centre just a few miles down the road. And this 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 made a huge impact on me aged, not even 25. It, mm. it was really powerful. And it said to me that this is pretty important, you know. I started to treat my career a bit more seriously then. Slowly, I think it started to dawn on me that some of the things I was doing I was actually quite good at. And I actually started to enjoy some of it you know I enjoyed conferences with council I enjoyed meeting clients I enjoyed the intellectual challenge the high court you know it, it was an extraordinary time you know I, I was in the court of appeal on a case called Robertson Johnston which I, I still may be a leading case in the first few weeks of my career I mean obviously I didn't know what I was doing I was just taking a nose but these things do have and you don't realize at the time they have profound effects on you you know well it certainly had a profound effect on me I just you're bringing it all back you were always determined whenever we you went to London, you know, you took whoever was working with you. And yeah. sometimes I think it was always difficult for partners to have young trainee solicitors, as we were known at the time, not article clerks. It's when you're training to do to become a, a solicitor after you've been to, to law school. I'm not in a way because they were all the bits of the law that I loved, the conferences, the trial preparation, the going mm. to court. There was yeah. just, it, there was always that excitement in your belly. And, and, and that's the one thing I almost started perhaps too high a level by working for you being my first boss in, in the legal world, because you just exposed me to the Royal Courts of Justice. You took me to the temple with QCs and really mm. high-profile cases, General Medical Council, where I'm going to just mm. get it in there that our QC didn't turn up and you stepped into his shoes. I will be shocked if there are many, many solicitors that were able to do that, Patrick. My jaw was on the floor that day. Oh, and, yeah. um, Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. See, you don't even it, remember. No, like, I do, that is I do, one of I, my biggest memories of you. I do remember that. And uh, yeah. the reason I stepped in was because well, the, the, the barrister did drop out, but also he couldn't afford <laughs> he I couldn't know. afford anybody else. So I always said that General Medical Council was the most difficult tribunal. Well, I tell you right now, what a privilege I had to watch you in action that day because it was sensational and always quote that experience has just been really jaw-dropping for me mm. I knew you were brilliant but then when I saw you that day I was like it was honestly it, it was a real privilege to watch and I think that came from you've just always had this inner steely determination and 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 I think I almost like a begrudging love of the law I think sometimes you <laughs> act like you, it gets on your nerves you get frustrated with it but you've got a massive love of justice into the intrigue of the law it, like the, you say the intellectual challenge of it the words and the writings side of it were always I think a bit of more of a, a draw for you that was definitely another one of your particular strengths as well as your very direct demeanor in terms of 
it, the the writing and the words that you know mm. you're always very economical and very precise when you talk mm-hmm. where did that come from I mean was there somebody that helped you expose you to that or is that something that you just learned along the way through all these incredible experiences as a young lawyer on my first day of articles in October 1984 my what they call principles or something he sort of talked to us about the importance of words language clarity and making sure that when we wrote in the name of Alison and Humphreys, as the firm was called, it was something that you would be proud of, something that you could say, well, that's the best I could do. That's the clearest I could be. That's the best use of language. And he gave us a little dictionary. It was a, an Oxford English dictionary, not a terribly big thing. And he said, now I want to start, uh, we'll start looking up some words. So we started looking up some words. And he said, just look how well expressed this is. And he said, that's the level that you need to get to when you're explaining something to a client, you know, concise, precise, and beautifully encapsulated. And so again, I didn't really think much of that at the time, but that sort of, in a sense, haunted me. And I kept coming back to it. And I, it was one of the very few books I've ever put my name in. And uh, I still have it to this day. And I use that dictionary probably every day or every other day of my career. And I would look it up and think, God, that's really good. And I would remember the chap's name. His name was Keith Allison. He'd come in in the morning and he'd say, morning, how are you? And he'd say, read that in the FT. And he'd give me an article to read in the FT. And then we'd have a little discussion about it. And he'd say, that's pretty good, that, isn't it? And so that gave me a love of journalism, a good journalism. So I read The Observer every Sunday. And when I read Andrew Rawnsley in The Observer, I actually think of Keith Allison. He used to say to me, read that in the FT or read that in the Times. In those days, it wasn't so much about you pay your article clerk 10000 a year and he's got a bill 100000 In those days, it was an education. I was quite bored and that in those two years but I, I got educated in in writing and so that did stay with me and, and kept coming back to me and so when I got my own cases I always wanted to write well and so whenever I read a judgment by a good judge you know really top judge you know say um, Bingham who was uh, master of the roles and Lord Chief Justice if he wrote a judgment you know I, I'd read that and think god I wish I could write like that you know or if I got a good opinion in from a really good barrister I'd think oh if only I could. And after a while, if you read enough of it, you pick up the way they write, don't you? Mm. So that, that clarity and that precision and that economy was something that I just aspired to. So my cases were usually quite document heavy and issue heavy and fact heavy. And I had loved I to sort of. What I I loved about the job wasn't so much about the law. And actually, it wasn't really so much about justice. It was about doing a good job, which I regarded as making things clear, you know, reporting to a client or drafting something which I thought, oh, that's, that's, that's a pretty good effort at, you know, summing up that case or advising the client what to do. And so anyway, that, that love of language really stemmed from my first day in articles and stayed with me throughout my career, but also permeated what I read outside of work. So good journalism and, and of course, you know, good novels, good history books. If it's well written, you know, I, I get a huge kick out of that. And I always say, if you want to write well, you have to read well. I mean, most barristers are really good at writing. Most judges are really good at writing. You know, I, I did have credible privileges in my career. You know, I, I instructed the best barristers. I instructed Jonathan Sumption and Rupert Jackson. Uh, and I was in the Court of Appeal several times. And, you know, those people are not only brilliant, most of them are very courteous as well and, and very civilised. And, and I like that about the law. You know, I, I like the fact that you could lead a civilised life, you know. And all of them, without exception, could write brilliantly. They weren't all great advocates, 
You know, some of them weren't uh, great at cross-examining, for example, but nearly all of them, well, all of them actually could write brilliantly. And I, I copied them, I suppose. Well, you did copy them and you definitely took in <laughs> everything mm. you could and learning from all of them, Patrick, because, you know, again, people used to queue up at your door for advice. I mean, I remember that sitting in your office. Some of my memories are like running around London carrying a hell of a load of heavy bags. <laughs> you walking incredibly quickly, knowing exactly where you were going and all the shortcuts. Some <laughs> amazing cases, rows and rows of lever arch files for one case. You were like, mm. I was like, where does it end? And you're like, down, down the corridor. Sending me off to do research, the mm. classic red pen, correcting my grammar, my vocabulary, and um, mm. making sure that I understood the law. You know, I but have to say, you did pass that on to me. I know I didn't stay, stick with the law. I stuck it for 10 years, but I have no doubt. It took me a while to realise, and like you said, you don't appreciate it at the time, how much I actually took from that career. But mm. I all know for a fact that me starting my first six months with you definitely laid a foundation for what I do today, without a doubt, because you instilled what what was instilled into you in terms of the importance of the written word and and, and reading looking beyond what's what's right in front of you has definitely mm-hmm. stayed with me so certainly thank you for that um and I feel very honored that that's where my career started and it's interesting it says you get older and then you look back you you then learn to appreciate it in terms of Waitmans you ended up back at Waitmans was it because you, your dad worked there and you wanted to come back to Liverpool. Well, it was a funny uh, tale. I mean, you talked about self-deprecating before. I mean, I did have connections in Liverpool, but I had no idea that anybody would want to employ me, you know. And I, So I'd done three years in London, and I was coming back. And I just applied to an agency, and they set up some interviews. And obviously, I was talking to my dad, but I never thought, because... I just, I don't think, I, I never thought, oh, my dad will get me a job. But I went to several interviews in Liverpool. Eventually, my friends at Waitman's, and I had one or two friends at Waitman's anyway, through me dad, uh, heard that I was looking for a job. And I, I, I got an interview at, at Waitman's. And it, it was clear from that interview that I was at home there. And mm. I knew one of my interviewers personally. And actually, I, I think I'd come round to thinking, well, it'd be quite nice to work in the same firm as my dad. That would be a sort of nice, nice bit of sort of, Symmetry, you know, and that was right. I, I did get a kick out of that. But I didn't, uh, you know, I'd, I'd done three years in London. I didn't know anything about Liverpool law. And uh, I didn't know whether my skills, such as they were, would be of any interest. So, I, you know, I'd done a lot of work for the medical profession and uh, Wayne Rutherford's didn't do that. And uh, Anyway, I, I hadn't appreciated really that sort of all litigation was the same, really, and that you could um, you could switch horses, you know? It is the same, but there's certainly difference in complexities, without a doubt. Well, you mentioned Lever Arch Files. Uh, I, I, I introduced Lever Arch Files to Waitman's. Uh, that was probably my, my greatest... Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. No, that, and, uh, and I, is that your legacy? Well, I think we'll come on to your legacy in a minute, but carry on. Well, Wait, Waitman's were doing big cases without Lever Arch files, and I, I just went along and said, "Well, you're giving me this big case, you know. I can't remember which what it was, but it was a big case, you know, maybe a thousand sheets." I said, "Well, how can I possibly do without a Lever Arch file?" So I went down to you know Oyes or somewhere and bought Lever Arch file. Anyway, within twelve months, everyone had Lever Arch files, and I remember going to a conference with a friend of yours, Graham Morrow, oh, yeah. and I, my my brief to him was was in Lever Arch files. And he couldn't couldn't believe it because he was used to like loads of papers with pink ribbon. 
He says, oh, he says, you must have worked in London. I have to say, those Libra Arch files were a little bit of the bane of my life at the time because it was just... But then you did have your bottom drawer and your bottom drawer was <laughs> was the skinny file, was all your friend, friends, family and, and all kinds of people who needed your help that, you know, I don't, you wouldn't get away with now. And um, yeah. I think when I was feeling a bit swamped, you'd direct me to the bottom drawer. <laughs> and it gave me a real variety of, you know, of different types. Of, I know you say litigation is litigation. The processes are, are the same to a point but you know they're certainly you know defending other other lawyers and the professional industry isn't easy and certainly from you know as a young trainee coming in I was like I'm not even a qualified lawyer myself yet how am I supposed to know if they've cocked up or not <laughs> and yeah. it was a it was a really it was a real huge huge learning curve it takes fear away you see because you know it's yeah. quite daunting being a lawyer isn't it I mean I remember yeah. going to court for the first time my, my first appearance in the high court in London was in what was called the Bear Garden probably qualified about a month and I went along to the court to uh, get permission to amend the claim and that meant that you had to have certain colouring on the on the pleading we were up to the re-re-amended defence or whatever it was <laughs> And my colouring was wrong. And the <laughs> the, the, you were summoned from the garden up to the bench and the judge would say, what do you want, sort of thing. Uh, anyway, so in front of about 12 other solicitors, uh, he, he tore a strip off me and said, I advise you to go over the road to, you know, Smith's, the news agents, and buy a, a violet-coloured pen or something and, and amend your pleading and be back here within half an hour or something. And, and these, are, these are great learning curves because mm. you, you, don't, you don't do it again. My learning curve at Waitman's was from Bradshaw, and, and he did to me what I did to you, which was bring me your report and sit down, and we'll go through it. And he, he had his own way of doing things, and his red pen was pretty well used as well. So you, you, weren't, you weren't alone. And, and so what I passed on was, you know, passed on to me. And you have to learn by your mistakes, and uh, you have to learn by appreciating that it's important, that it's not just sort of, what you say is how you say it mm. you can give all the advice that you need to give but if you give it in the wrong way then it's either not accepted or it's misunderstood you know it's uh, it's and to be honest you talk about learning curves i was learning until the last day of my career i always felt humbled by the fact that the law was so vast you know and how can you possibly be expected to know what to do? Because there's so much law out there. And obviously, during the course of my career, it went from Times Law Report every now and then to law reports coming out of your ears every day. I used to say to the firm of a managing partner, you know, don't get worked up about being in a specialism because the law is vast. You can do anything you like and your skills are transferable. But mm. a lot of lawyers got into, a, you know, I'm very specialist and I only do, you know, ecclesiastical law for, for bishops over 75, you know. And <laughs> you, 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 it's, it's a shame that because it's, it is. It's, yeah, it, is a re it is a real shame because people get boxed in. And I think that happens in a lot of careers, but particularly the law. Because I know when you talk about fear, that's the one thing in my varied career that I've had it so varied that I've been, a, because I've been quite fearless. Mm. Not, not initially, you're always nervous when you start something new. But mm. with every role that I've done, I've just gone, I know if I put my mind to this, I, I can learn it. And I think mm. that's because of the introduction that I had at such a young age to, to such mm. complexity, for want of a better phrase, you know, in terms mm. of, you know, if you can master that, you can you can literally, honestly, go into any area and you, you can learn it if you want to. 
And the other thing about law is, I mean, to some extent, it's a performance. To some extent, it's smoke and mirrors and you're acting and you're probably exaggerating things. But you can say to a client, oh, yes, I had a case, you know, you've had one case. Yeah, but there's so many transferable skills there as well. And I think that's what you were saying before about, you know, people do get stuck, not even just within the law. They they don't even, they they stay within their specialty within the law, but they wouldn't dream of ever leaving the law. And the one thing that, again, Mm -hmm. that I've learned is that are the transferable skills that you can definitely take into other areas. Yeah. Um, Definitely. You know, without, without a doubt. It took me a long time to realise that, but I know that I still draw on the on the, the skills that I learned all the time. Well, at what point, I mean, in Waitman's you were highly regarded, Patrick, and it wasn't just because of your legal brain, um, mm-hmm. which everybody did admire you for, because as I said earlier, people, you'd sit in your room and partners would be a bit of a cue sometimes coming up in to ask you for your advice and you'd lean, I can see you now just leaning back in your chair with your hands behind your head saying it's just common sense, really. Um, yeah, and, it is, yeah. And common sense. I tell you what it is. It's common sense, but it's uh, judgment based on experience. Yes, you know? there you go. And th- those are the ingredients. Yeah. Judgment based on experience, and uh, I think ultimately that's what clients pay for. They pay for judgment. You know, should I settle? Should I go further? Should I drop the case? Do I need this bit of evidence? Blah blah blah. And, and it does give you a great feeling when you there is a buzz, isn't there? There is a something that again, you when you're talking, I can feel it in those feelings in your stomach where you know they're looking to you for for your guidance, and it's very very important to them. It was always important to me, which is probably what my problem was. I was probably too emotionally attached to every every client that I had. But in terms of them looking to you, it's when you know that you're good at what you do, it's a great feeling, isn't it? Don't you think? It is. I mean, I think a lot of lawyers are quite insecure. I mean, a lot of barristers are overworked because uh, they fear that if they say no, they'll never get another case, you know. And Mm. we were always overworked. I mean, I was overworked and had too many cases on for most of my career. And you get very little time for self-reflection and thinking whether you're any good. And, you know, you'd do a case and you'd come out of court and you'd warn you to be made up. But by the time you got back to the office, you realised there was half a dozen cases that needed your attention and it was a bit of a sort of coming down to earth, you know. I never really ever really even thought, you know, was I any good at this? I just thought I was on a career path and, you know, I knew I was learning, but I never thought I got to the stage where I was any good. And then one day a, a client phoned me and I just sent a report. It was a big insurance client. I just sent a report saying this decision's gone a particular way and you ought to appeal it. And and he said, and I can remember him saying it now, and it's probably it's probably over twenty five years ago. And and he said, uh, well, he said, if you're saying appeal it, we'll, we'll you know that will carry great weight here, and we we probably will. And I, I and I said, are you sure? I mean, why do you say that? And he said, well, you know, you're very highly thought of, and it was the first time anyone had said actually, you know, you're any good. <laughs> I was shocked actually. I was shocked. I thought, well. I had no idea that the stuff I was churning out and sending in correspondent letters, as it was in those days, in the documents exchange, was was registering with anybody. But I, I loved what you said before, though. Um, it wasn't. It's not just the actual advice it's the how you gave it and again your incredible demeanor when it came to sort of no bs you were very direct you were quietly charismatic <laughs> that's you know clever scouse humor modest and with that big massive dose of common sense combined with obviously the legal advice and mm. i think that's probably what won a lot of people over it certainly again from looking back and knowing you it what 
you know, you certainly had the admiration of, you know, your colleagues, your peers, the staff, QCs, barristers, you know, everybody you came across clearly had a real admiration for you. But I definitely think it was a likability factor thrown into the, you know, the fact that you knew your craft. You see, in a law firm, I was a managing partner for 10 years, but in a law firm, there's no hierarchy. You know, you're a partner, sorry, in a law firm partnership, there's no hierarchy. You're all partners, you're all... Mm joint and several, you're all equal in the eyes of the Lord, you know, and um, how do you have the ability to be able to say to people who are at the same level, this is what we're going to do, because lots of them disagreed with you, you know, and so you, you, you've got to have credibility. So the, none of them could say, well, you've never done a case. None of them could say, well, you've never been in the Court of Appeal or whatever, you know. So I had that sort of credibility because I'd done a bit of law. And also, uh, because by then, 2003, I did know how to write. And so I wrote clearly and I said, this is what we're going to do. And so even if they didn't agree with it, they at least had the comfort of knowing that I was clear. But I never thought that I, you know, that that lawyers always hedge their advice with, well, you know, there are risks and all that sort of stuff. I always thought that what, what I thought was good for the firm, you know, may not be, you know, and some of my decisions were terrible. Making a terrible decision is a really good thing to do actually because it makes you realize that when other people make mistakes you know it's there but for the grace of god you know i mean i i recruited some terrible people obviously should be nameless i said things in my early time as managing partner which you know i am genuinely really embarrassed about and the great thing about you learn from that though no but you can't be perfect (laughs) or I'm saying it'll probably sound like I'm really kissing your backside here, but you can't be perfect all the time. I I love the fact that you've just admitted that. I'm Mm. not surprised by the fact that you've admitted it either. But at the Mm. same time, you can go wrong and then admit you've gone wrong and still retain respect, even if people disagree with you as well, because of what's gone before and you having that credibility. But but lawyers are very unforgiving, you know, and... um... Well, I suppose to some extent I was from time to time. You know, and you, I mean, you have critical faculties as a lawyer. I mean, it's one of the best things about being a lawyer. You, you do learn to have critical faculties. You learn to have mm. analytical skills and you learn to form judgments. And that can make you very judgmental. Yes. I started getting involved in the manager of the firm sort of just before the millennium. You know, obviously, you, don't, you haven't got a clue. I mean, you don't know how business works. You're not brought up to know how business works. I became managing partner, didn't have a clue even then. And then after a couple of years, you thought, actually, you know, this is, this is doable, you know. And it, there's a cycle, there's a pattern, there's a budget, there's a business plan, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and there's a load of stuff around telling people what's going on. Because if you tell people what's going on, you're 80% of the way there, really. Because as managing partner of a firm yeah. of, you know, a thousand people, again, it's, it's not down to you, is it? But, well, I know, but your leadership without, again, I'm coming back to the how. You tell them, but it's how you tell them. There was never any big fanfare with you, Patrick, was there? You know, you you swore to me. You know, I used to say, you need to, get, you need to be in the management side of things. And you say, no, I'm happy on the back benches. I mean, again, you used to say that. I mean, I don't know what led you to the decision. You, I guess you were invited to apply or, but I think you you probably knew that you had the support and it might've been some sort of people power pushed you forward. I don't know. But I know no. you, you, had, you had the staff and the culture and the, the Waitman's at your heart as, a, yeah. as well as the business side of it. And I think that's probably what got you that role. You know, we're not underplaying this. You took Waitman's from, through like mergers, acquisitions, you know, these are multi-million pound fee income deals. <laughs> yep. And you've I had think, zero think, experience in it. I'll tell you how it happened. I, I, it was just a conversation with Ian Evans, uh, the senior partner at the time. And I just said, well, uh, do you think I should uh, apply to become managing partner? There was, there was a vote, um, you know, the candidates. It was sort of like a bit like an election. Did you ask him or did he ask you? No, I, I asked him. I said, do you think I should? He said, oh, yeah, you should, yeah. 
you know what's going on. He said something bland like, you know what's going on, or you know how the firm works, something like that. Mm. And so I applied and uh, won the election. And that was for 12 months. Then there was another election, and that was for three years, I think. And then I did three terms of three years. So every three years, there wasn't an election after that. But I didn't really get into the mergers and acquisitions. In fact, I was very anti them. I didn't. I always, I always said, like, why don't we just get better and not bigger? That's what my mantra: get better. Because people used to say, oh, we need to merge. We need to become, you know, more commercial. We need to be bigger. We need to be in all sorts of places. And I'd say, well, partly because it was already a big job, and I just hated the thought of acquiring another load of job, you know. So uh, I didn't really. I, we only had our first merger with, what was that, Mason Jones. Towards the end of my time, actually, 2011. So I'd done eight years and I'd resisted mergers because I thought the firm was growing okay anyway, you know, and I, I didn't really want to sort of take on a load of strangers and have yet another job, you know. Anyway, I was probably wrong on that in retrospect. I mean, I think actually... We should have been a bit bolder, but uh, we did okay. We did, um, I mean, if you measure it by revenue, the revenue kept going up and the headcount kept going. I think, well, what, what, why do we need to merge? Because it seems to be going okay. And I actually think that's probably a bit of a mistake. But when it came to the merger in 2011, that was really led by the current managing partner, John Scorer. Uh, although obviously I was there and I was sort of saying hello and that sort of thing. Uh, and the firm uh, sort of did change. It became sort of more commercial. But I was sort of on my way out then because I knew I didn't want to do more than 10 years, not because I was not capable of doing another 10 years, but because I just thought it's bad for an organization to have somebody doing this job for, for more than 10 years, you know, and the firm needed to change. The firm needed to go in a different direction and it, and it did. You know, if Waitman's had stayed the same size or kept on improving, then I'd have been quite happy. I was never a sort of Nigel Knowles at DLA or um, no. there's a chap at DWF, Andrew Leland, who wanted to make D, DWF massive. I, I never interested me, really. It's just like, I mean, it's yeah. a difficult job as it is. I think the point I still definitely want to make is that you were certainly popular amongst staff and your peers. And, and you know, and, and I think it was just that firm feet on the ground attitude that people, you know, I'm laughing about the conversation with Ian. I reckon there was a little bit more to it than that because he will have certainly recognised your qualities as a person as well as a lawyer I, I completely separately. But what was always endearing about you was that you were just so different to your... Your, your regular managing partner, I'm guessing, who would have, you know, you had the, this rare trait of just keeping everything firmly grounded. And like you say, you didn't really want to go with the big fanfare. You didn't really want to. You just wanted to get better as opposed to bigger. It, at the time, though, did you have, like you say, you've got your family, you know, you loved your footy. Did you, how did you manage to separate it all out? Because... You must have had, I mean, obviously, I know Joe was poorly as well. You know, you had a mm. lot going on, didn't you, Patrick? And that was, I used to worry about you, if I'm honest. And I think other prob people probably did, but you just kept going. Uh, did you have a mentor or was there a particular time where you were, it was really, really tough? Well, I'll tell you what's tough. I mean, if you look back at the generation above us, my dad, you know, he, he lost his dad when he was little. He lost uh, his brother when he was seven uh, his dad had been on the Lusitania and his dad's brother died on the Lusitania mm. my mum and dad went through you know the depression the 1930s the second world war my dad was 18 he got called up in 1939 that's tough isn't it but I mean, I mean it's, it's tough is relative isn't it it is relative uh, but there must have been times where you were just like what the hell if there were I can't remember them but memory does play tricks I mean I, what I would say is that it was the job never left you. So you talk about my other interests. I never stopped thinking about work. I would be sitting watching a match thinking about a witness statement or, 
you know, a, a document I had to get out or some problem at work. I, I could even be singing a song and think about something to do at work. And when I retired, I realised how all-consuming work had been. But at the time, because it was it was normative, I, I didn't really sort of ever think. I mean, I never thought Waitman's asked too much of me. And I, I always thought, well, you know, it's not really tough, is it? Because you sit in a nice warm office and you've got people running around after you, you know, and... I tell you what's tough now, IT, because I haven't got an IT department. You know, I haven't got people to come and do mm. scans of documents for me. I'm sort of uh, a bit lost without that infrastructure. Yeah. And it, being a, a lawyer uh, is tough because sometimes people, you know, are on your case and you've got too much to do. You've always had too much to do. But it's not a tough environment in the sense that it's it's, it's a nice place. I mean, you know, our offices were nice and very often went first class and stayed in nice hotels. It's not tough, is it? Mm. I mean, I, I, I know people who have a tough life and I would never say I had a tough life. I, I meant more sort of more mentally rather than, you know, you having the nice the warmth of a nice office and the trappings. Mentally, now, I mean, you said you did say that you, you know you said you you'd be at the match and you never left you, but at least you would go to the match, which is good. At least you played. You're still yeah. playing footy with your mates. You're stuck to doing things in the community, and we'll come on to that with the Irish centre. Your but family you, always came first as well, didn't they? But but I always laughed. I I laughed all the time, and even you know even on my cases we'd have a laugh. You know, I mean, we, uh, and laughter is such a a great way of seeing things for what they are you know yeah. you describe yourself deprecating but actually I just deprecate everything you know I, 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 <laughs> I and so everything becomes a source of, you can find amusement and laughter in practically everything and the law you know the pomposity of the law you know I mean the law was a great source of comedy and I, I've always yeah. loved comedy I never really and I, and I was with some funny people at Waitman's you know and you know, some of the funniest people I've met, uh, have met, I mean, I can think of three of them now, just sitting in my mental virtual room that, that could have made it as comedians, you know. And, and so it's very hard to say, I don't really think uh, the firm asked too much of me. And actually, the clients didn't either, really. And I had nice clients. I had a very interesting practice. Some of my cases were, were brilliant. You know, I had, I had a good life out of it, and uh, I, I'd find it very hard to say it was tough, really. Mm. So I had no need to worry about you then? Basically, <laughs> uh, you're getting the bus. <laughs> I'd be like, why is he at yeah. the bus stop? You used to get the bus. And you'd uh, always have paint on your shoes. I mean, you'd literally have the... <laughs> Did I? <laughs> you were always good cleaning, well, was, doing something always... in the house. Yeah, I, I like the bus because uh, you you, you, it's. I like those little oases. I like the train, and I like it where you can just sort of get away from things and you know read a book or have a doze. But that, they're very important those little breaks, you know. And and actually, you know, because I was busy outside of work, you know, I, there was lots of time when I wasn't working, but it work never left me. I, I would wake up in the night and I'd have an idea about a case or something, and I'd mentally or physically be writing down what I'd have to do. But I didn't sort of ever think, oh, this is really stressful. I didn't think, oh, you know, this is, uh, I'm going to crack up because I'm, I'm overloaded. I never, ever thought that I had issues with mental or physical health, actually. I've always stayed quite fit. Maybe that's a part of it. You know, you, you yeah. stay fit, you do your running and you kick a ball now and again. And, you know, Have a laugh fit. at your mates. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I didn't drink too much, didn't eat too much. So I was, I was lucky for that. But I was lucky with my, um, what's the word? Physiology, is that the right Physiology, word? Physiology, yeah. Yeah. So it's obviously you've, you've, you've left the law now and you've, if you were giving advice to a young lawyer, I normally say give advice to your younger self, but I'll let, let's stick to the, to the law for now. If you were going to give advice to a, somebody coming into the legal world today, 
Mm. Would it be again about the importance of writing, or has it changed an awful lot? Yeah, well, I, I am, st- I'm am still slightly in the law. I, I teach at Hope, and I talk to very young lawyers, 18, 19 year olds. So I, I tell them the following: I say, you probably find it a bit boring and difficult. So you've got to find what interests you. So I say to them, find the legal aspects of a newspaper. They probably don't read a newspaper or the big news that's online. Find things that interest you. Uh, I mean, most of them say, oh, well, you know, I want to do crime because that's what we always did when we were 18. We always wanted to be a criminal lawyer. But I say to them, you've got to, you've got to try to be interested. You've got, to, you've got to work hard and find out what's interesting and then talk to people about it, you know. I mean, the law is basically normal sort of human skills like reading and writing and speaking taken on to a sort of higher level isn't it with a bit of analytical stuff going on and obviously you need a bit of knowledge but you can start getting good at reading and writing and speaking uh, and you can improve that by talking as we are you know we, we, we could have a conversation now about I don't know you know that you were very so. honest with me when I came to you about the law because it was changing massively then wasn't it when I mm-hmm. when I left you know I you know I'd, I'd become a bit disillusioned with sort of the business side of it which I didn't know anything about I, I know a lot more about it now but obviously the business side of it was you know fees and pressure from clients and there was a yeah. lot of change and you know I just wanted to do the do the absolute best for the client from an out from an outcome legal perspective and and mm-hmm. the, the struggle was always how quickly you could get that done I, I don't know what it's like now but I'm still I think a lot of law firms are adapting from a health and well-being, mental health perspective. There's more flexible working now. There's options to work from home, obviously, advances in technology. But there is still that pressure, isn't there? It is a business at the end of the day, isn't it? Well, yeah, and I probably wouldn't have gone into it if I'd known that because what attracted me to the law was, you know, I wouldn't have to sell myself and do all Mm. that sort of stuff. But it did change. But, you see, in some ways it changed for the better and standards improved. But the big change was technology because technology – uh, absolutely transformed the law. So uh, I'll give you an example. When you've, uh, I can't remember the year you you left, but uh, there was a time when I would go home tired because I'd been on the phone all day. By the time I left, I was getting about three phone calls a day and I was getting 40 emails, you know, and uh, yeah. so communications changed. We had all sorts of systems to make us more efficient. And of course, as you see in all sorts of areas of life, they eventually become, they, they, they eat you up, don't they? Because you're, you're so worried about your systems and ticking the boxes and complying that you, you you forget that you're there to give legal advice. And so by the time I left, I was starting to think, actually, I'm no longer really fit for purpose. And and that year and a year or a year a bit when people were working from home uh, and their office was their laptop and their kitchen table, I, I just couldn't have coped with that because for me, the law was, you know, it was sort of, you know, having the crack, you know, it was going to London and having nice conferences and going to court and and seeing dozens of people every day and speaking to people about cases i mean the law for me came alive when you'd have a conference that that was my favorite thing Mm -hmm. and you sit around a table with a barrister expert client whatever and you talk about how you were going to deal with the case i I love that i mean i genuinely genuinely i i would have paid to do that you know and i got paid for it i just think this is this is great it it was like it was like a, a story unfolding a case and you could mould and shape the story, you know? Yeah. 
and that that's the bit I absolutely loved as well. I was very lucky to be um to do a lot of trials as well and see things mm. right through, which is quite rare, isn't it? So, but I, I yeah. experienced a lot of that. And I always go at things now. And again, it only struck me a few years ago that I always seem to look at the end and work backwards. And I'm convinced it's because of the trials that we I used to do. Because yeah. we'd always say, what would happen if we take this to trial? What are the risks? Yeah. And what do we need to do to eliminate those risks? The costs and whatever. And I, I know that's now how that's how my brain works. If I want to get somewhere, I yeah. get there and then I work backwards. <laughs> when you stu- when you study law, you see this judgment, this thing called a judgment, and that's like the fate accompli, that's the decision, that's that's sort of what's happened. You don't see any of the stuff that goes into it. Yeah. I suppose when I'm speaking to students, I hope I'm trying to get them to see a bit like what you're talking about. This is a story which unfolded over three years. And so when you read a judgment, it's very hard to get your head around the fact that there's a, a whole history. It's just, mm. The judgment's the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and and it's, it's a shame, really, that when you're studying law, you say, right, well, this is how, you know, Donahue and Stevenson came to be. You know, you don't yeah. see that. No, mm. you don't until you actually do go into practice. And then often it's it's quite rare. Certainly as a, tra- certainly a trainee, you move on, don't you? You get, you get, you get a mm. slice of a case. And then you have to leave it behind. That was always a killer. It's such a good feeling when you take something from the beginning to the end. Yeah, and again, I, I imagine it's quite rare and I got to do that a lot. So, you know, again, I was very, very lucky. And mm. I definitely think it's it's a skill that, you know, an, an experience that has held me in good stead in terms of my the career after the law. And again, I feel very lucky for that. Um, in terms of moving forward then, you know, the Irish Centre, we've got to come on to that. Oh, yeah. So we're going to sort of park, though, is it? you know park the law for now I think and I know I love the fact that you're still in it with your students and that's great um but I think probably one of the things you probably do need to say to them and what you've always been very good at is having something separate outside of your career that keeps you grounded and keeps you connected in the community and that's one thing you've massively been able to do isn't it and I didn't actually appreciate that you'd been involved with the Irish Centre for 20 years I wasn't surprised I knew you were connected Tell us how you, obviously, you grew up loving and being very passionate about Ireland with your roots. You know, you love the literature, the music, the history. I know you visit Ireland mm. a lot. I suppose it was inevitable that you got involved. But- yeah. Uh, so it, it happened really because of my mum, I suppose, because she was uh, a member of the Irish Centre from the late 60s. So we went to the Irish Centre in Mount Pleasant. And then when my daughter started dancing every Saturday morning, I'd go in and I'd speak to a, a, a fellow called Tommy Walsh, who started both Irish centres and was a great hero of mine. And probably around 2001, the Irish Centre hadn't long opened in Boundary Lane. He said to me, will you come on the committee? And, and I did say to him, Tommy, the last thing I want to do is be on a committee. I hate being on committee. Anyway, because he'd asked me, a bit like Ian Evans, really, because, because I had such respect for Tommy Walsh, I said, yeah, but I won't do it for long anyway. So I'm still on it. And... Um, <laughs> I was chair for three years, 2012, 2015, something like that. Uh, and then I became chair again two two years ago, about 18 months ago when the pandemic started. So uh, I've had a long uh, involvement on the committee, but I, I'm not really there to be on a committee. I, I don't really get much of a kick out of that sort of thing. What I get a kick out of is, is putting Irish stuff on. So uh, music's been a big thing in my life, and I've been really into Irish folk music for a very long time. I've read, I've read a lot of Irish literature. And history, I mean, we grew up on Irish history. The songs tell you about the history. And yeah. uh, my family is a story of Irish history. So I, mm. uh, and history is that I keep finding Wexford? out of. Is it Wexford? Did you? All over, Wex, Wexford, Kilkenny, down, yeah. Donegal. 
I think the story of Irish emigration to Liverpool is a great story and it is literally epic. So for all those reasons, uh, I'm very keen that uh, Irish culture is celebrated in Liverpool. And I still think that the Irish Centre is is not only valid, I think it's really vibrant. I think it's doing lots of new things and it's taken its heritage and taken all the stuff that we were doing, that they were doing in the 60s and has, has kept it going. But also it's an increasingly important uh, modern uh, place and, and my brother uh, said to me he, he went to a do there recently he just turned to me and said there's nowhere else like this there's nowhere else like you know yeah so it it's is just about spreading that word isn't it it's about getting that message out we we came along to the i think it was the van um on like a cinema night with a chipper van and mm-hmm. um, with the fish and chips and mm-hmm. and and the bar and it was absolutely brilliant. And the, the, the community, sense of community, it was so simple. I'm sure it wasn't simple to put on and put together, but it felt the simplicity of it made it just so gorgeous. We're busier yeah. than ever. There's something going on every day. I mean, I, I'm not really into social media, as you know, but the, the, the interest online is is tremendous. And, you know, you, you go in now and uh, you see the sort of energy from people who are just doing stuff, you know, young and old. And, well, we were doing a pantomime every year. We haven't done one for a while, obviously, for lockdown sort of thing. So we, we missed the last couple of years. So we're starting the, the next pantomime. And the energy from the people who got together to to do the pantomime last weekend, and they're just they're absolutely made up and they're, they get stuck in, and uh, and then there's uh, you know we, we put uh, John Connell doing a concert next month. It was sold out within minutes. We're doing a Pogues tribute night, and that's that's going to be a great night. We've got loads of stuff going on over Christmas. We've got our first grotto starting every year. There'll be a point where you say this is the first time we are, you know, and there's always new stuff going on. It's not just about being Irish, is it? It's like a because obviously no. historically we had that influx in the 1840s and we can all most of us can trace something back to Ireland you know in terms of Liverpool there isn't actually an Irish part of Liverpool is there I mean there used to be I'm guessing down sort of Scotland Roadway and Mm. I know there was the Mersey Tunnels had an impact on that I think and then I think there was some community in South Liverpool because it was St Pat's Church wasn't there yeah but has that had an impact on it where it is and I suppose that's the message that needs to come out it's it's not just Mm. about being Irish and it's about community is that right it is well I said recently and I think it might be in the business plan that we're going to be uh, the best Irish centre in the country and the best community centre in the city and that's what we're aiming for the the Irish in Liverpool I mean they talk about an Irish community it is a bit sort of fragmented but to some extent it's because it's so long and deep you know so so if you if you look at Liverpool there was a huge Irish community in as you say in Scotland Road that's been dispersed the, the old centre, which was deemed to be an iconic building up in Mount Pleasant, was it was a tremendous place. But that wasn't really in the heart of the Irish community. That yeah. was just a place that people went to. And so people say to me, oh, well, it's no good because it's out of town. But it's a 15-minute walk. It's five minutes in a taxi. So I've got no problems on where it is. And we have plans to make it bigger and better, which hopefully will come off. But it's, it's about the people who go there and what happens there, really. And uh, we've got a car park. We've got a garden, you know, we've got lots of things that you wouldn't get if you were in the centre of town. And talking about the Irish community in Liverpool, you you know, you've got to start really talking about 180 years of history to find out where they are. You know, it's it's, it's not a straightforward thing. If you go to the Leeds Irish Centre, Leeds Irish Centre is outside the city centre. 
quite a warehouse actually that was built by the Irish community because that's where they lived. Well, yeah. we, we, never, we never had it's that. It's like in that in San Francisco, where my brother is and my family are. And um, mm. their Irish centre is, is abs- from what I know, and has thrived and is still thriving. And that next generation are very much bought into it. But I still think it is where they live. And I think that that, that is a benefit. But... You know, it's that message now about it's not just about it's about being coming together as a community, isn't it? More than ever, yeah. I, everything Irish is, is always a positive. I mean, you've got yeah. even got the an Irish shop now, haven't you? Which apparently yeah, yeah. is commercially doing incredibly well with yeah. all the produce and is becoming really well known in the city. And then you talk about the garden, which is a, it's a beautiful. I was down there on on Tuesday. We met with the Men in Sheds UK charity, which is brilliant that you collaborated with them because it's um, yeah. you know a cause for to get men coming together to be creative to to get involved in the gardening to do crafts but it's also that they, they called it shoulder to shoulder from what i recollect and that's right and, yeah and it, it was really about getting involved in stuff but having that opportunity just to meet other men and hopefully open up and those lines of communication and just chat to each other really yeah. and on the back of that you could potentially just weave in that bit of knowledge around prostate cancer about the importance of opening up about you know, mental well-being just yeah. subtly introduce it um, and yeah. the importance really is around that that community and that and i just mm-hmm. think under your stewardship with it with the guys that i met um last week it's only going to go from strength to strength patrick yeah, i think so yeah yeah just on that last thing the, the reason the shed happened was because somebody went to ireland and the men shed things are big thing in ireland and we recently had uh, the irish finance minister simon coveney come over to open the shed and he talked about his shed, sorry, the shed from his community in a place called Carrigaline in Cork. It's a massive thing. So even the finance minister had personal knowledge of a shed. So it's a big thing in Ireland. So really, if anything goes on in Ireland, I try to th- think, well, is there something that we can do to bring things home for people, really? But it happened because somebody just said, oh, just been to Ireland. The men's sheds is a really big thing. and We should look at that. And, and I just sort of ignored it, just sounded so, so daft. But uh, people kept talking. Sometimes you just need to keep talking. And so when we were doing the garden, it might have been the same person or somebody else said, oh, we really need to do the men's shed now. And it, so, it starts to make more sense then because obviously in a garden you have a shed. And so then it starts to look into what went on in the shed. And I, I think it will become integral to, to what we do. You know, I think it will be a big thing and a good thing. Uh, and I think people will get a kick out of it. See, it's, it's going to be the only men's shed in, in Liverpool that, so I think once people get the hang of it, it'll become a very popular thing. I'm not actually, I mean, I, I personally, you know, I've never been sort of, you know, one for sort of opening up and all that sort of thing. Mm. But I could give you case studies of people who've been transformed by the Irish Centre. It, it, they come alive there, you know. They meet people, they can do things. Uh, the garden has transformed people's lives. You know, a lot, lot yeah. of the people who work in the garden don't have a garden. So that's one thing. But a lot of people, it's surprising to me, they, they don't really talk to many people. And so you can go mm. to a, a place which is nice because the garden is a nice environment now. And you can talk to people about anything. And nobody's, you know, the, nobody gets up with you about anything. There. You know, they, they just sort of get up with it. So actually, I, I mean, I've, I've had a huge kick out of doing the garden and transforming it from, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a kip into something where I think it's going to be a, be a, a really special place, you know, with great wildlife, great ecology, great environmental stuff. Uh, and the reason I think the shed will work is in terms of the mental health issues that you're talking about, or the health issues you're talking about, it's just nice to sit there 
uh, on a nice sunny day yeah. and you feel better just for being there you know so I'm very I'm very pleased we've done it uh, I, I almost allow myself to be quite proud to have been part of it because <laughs> I think this is a sort of thing that will help the generations and the reason I'm involved in the Irish Centre is actually Tommy Walsh apart it's it's because I felt I owed something to Ireland you know there was a lad who got uh, who got hurt in Liverpool City Centre a few few months ago, and he was in a very serious situation. He was from a place called Cady in Armagh, and the people who looked after him were the Liverpool Irish Centre, uh, and they now think that the Liverpool Irish Centre is great, and that's what happens. Mm. It's a place where people get looked after. He was over on a stag night, and unfortunately, he got beaten up. He fractured his skull. I mean, it got in the papers and all that. It was a quite a big news story for a, for a few days. But the people who looked after that family who knew nothing about Liverpool were the people in the Liverpool Irish Centre. And that it's obviously doesn't happen every week, but that, that's what happens, you know. That, real you know. sense of, that is real sense of community, isn't it? And spirit coming together. Yeah. And something positive will definitely, not only have they supported them, but there'll be long, long-term positivity that there comes will, yeah. out of that, won't there? Yeah. And that you've got a relationship there for life and yeah. who knows where yeah. that's then going to lead. I mean, Tommy Walsh was there, what, 30 years. You're not too far behind. <laughs> Tommy, Tommy Walsh started the old Irish Centre in 1964. I think yeah. it opened officially in first of February a, 1965. He's written a book, hasn't he, about being Irish in Liverpool? Like yeah, that. he did, yeah. But my family features heavily in it for some reason. But he, I, I used to, you know, this is about conversations. Every Saturday morning, uh, I loved my conversations with Tommy Walsh. I should really have kept a note of them, but. I was probably too busy. I should have kept a diary and every Saturday morning would have been Tommy said this. And, I bet and, you uh, can remember a lot of it. Now you've got a little bit, little bit. I know you've got your lovely grandson and you, you know, you're still busy, but maybe you can, after this, it'll inspire you to just maybe have a little a day of yeah. thinking about what he said to you and, and scribble them down. Yeah. All these people, you know, the people we come across, they all influence us, you know. Yeah. Uh, everybody leaves a little mark, don't they? And uh, yeah. some are very positive and some are very big and, and some aren't so positive. And, uh, but, but he was... Was, uh, one of those people where you thought this is really special uh, having a relationship with this man who knows so much has done so much and is such a good talker Tommy Wallace's great skill was somebody new would come into the Irish Centre bar and within half an hour, Tommy Walsh would know more about them than they knew about themselves. And he would be able to say, well, where are you from? And he'd know somebody. And it was just, it was brilliant to see him work in the room. He was an absolutely brilliant, marketer. what's it called? Networker. He, the best I've ever known. And, and he probably had a fairly poor education, but he was self-educated. But the, the, his big thing was he was interested in people. Mm-hmm. And uh, not in a nosy way. He, he knew how, and he could put people together, you know, and he, he was, he was, the best I ever came across. Far from me. <laughs> I'm <sure>. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get that in there, didn't yeah. I? Yeah. Well, you're pretty good, yeah. You're pretty I'll, good. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take that as that's a compliment from you. No, you are. Pretty, and that, I, I told you all those years ago that those were your skills. I know. I know you did. You did. And uh, I, have, I have a lot to thank you for. Uh, but anyway, we are going to bring this to a massive conclusion. And it's because, because we could, you know, me and you is like we have our little walks around the park and mm. we go off in all different directions. And I've, I, again, I'll always be grateful for our walks, Patrick, because it's something mm. we've managed to keep up. Um, yeah, we'll do that. We'll do one soon. Yes. Yeah. Shame and, about uh, the name of your dog, though. But never <laughs> <mind>. <laughs> I had to, I just, well, it was to wind you up, wasn't it? Mm. Hendo's just like the best name ever. <laughs> I can hear the silence and the mm. angst coming through the screen. <laughs> no, nah, got no angst now. No, I know you haven't. Um, but you know what? 
I will always be grateful for that red pen of yours. It's just something that, like I say, stood me in good stead. I'll always be grateful for your honesty and integrity. The way you behave and act is just something that I always want to emulate. I know we're very different characters, but I do take a lot from whenever we get together and whenever we talk. And I do have you know, a real admiration for you. And you know that, and that that's the reasons we've kept in touch over all these years. You know, I was chatting to somebody from Waitman's just yesterday, Tracy mm. Doyle, you know, again, I mentioned you and she straight away, her voice sort of lifted and positivity. And that's the effect that you have on people because people remember you, Patrick. And that's the reason I wanted to get you on today. People don't remember, well, they may remember your title and, you know, the hours that you put in, but most importantly, they'll remember how you make them feel. And as I say, that's the reason why I've I've definitely stayed connected and and want to stay connected and keep doing our walks. And I look forward to them for many years to come. Yeah. Um, Well, we still can walk. That'll be good. Well, Yeah. So I'll keep loving and learning from you. And yeah, yeah. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure. I've thank enjoyed you. it. And uh, you do yourself down. You've made a great contribution in all sorts of areas. And uh, I wish you well in whatever this podcasty thing is, you know. I, so, I told you, I told your husband uh, that uh, the last podcast I was on led to a woman getting in touch with is it a podcaster, whoever, whoever ran the podcast, yeah. and said, uh, I know that fella. I, it turned out I was related to her. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, you might and, have uh, some more, more people coming out the woodwork after yeah. this. So, so I'm meeting her for the first time in two weeks. Yeah. Uh, I'll t- on our next walk, I'll tell you all about it. <laughs> well, I look forward to it. Love you lots. God bless. See you now. The simple yet powerful art of conversation and communication should never be underestimated. And I would love to hear your thoughts and feedback either via the contact form on my website, talkontowalkon.com, or on my Instagram, at michellewalters underscore. Also, I'd be thrilled if you could help the Power of Conversation message to reach as many people as possible. To help achieve this dream, and so that you never miss an episode of Talk On To Walk On, please rate, review, and subscribe, remembering that the simplest act can have the largest impact.